This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Veronica Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Well, welcome to another edition of the East TraumaCast. Uh, I'm very excited about the topic today. Uh, this is something that has made headlines uh, across the uh, field of medicine. I've had a lot of questions about this topic from colleagues of mine outside of trauma surgery uh, in critical care and in other areas, so uh, this should be very exciting. Uh, joining me today are uh, Drs. Jason Sperry and Mark Yazer, uh, who are uh, lead author and co-author of the uh, uh, pre-hospital plasma during air medical transport in trauma patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock, uh, article published in the New England Journal in, on July 26th of 2018, uh, known as the PAMPER trial. You may have seen it uh, advertised. Um, First off, let me welcome uh, Dr. Jason Sperry. Uh, Jason's an assistant professor of surgery and critical care at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Jason, thanks for joining us. Well, happy to be here. And also joining us is uh, Dr. Mark Yazer, who's professor of pathology in the Division of Transfusion Medicine at the University of uh, Pittsburgh Medical Center. Mark, thanks for joining us as well. well thanks for inviting me. Uh, I wanted to just kind of give a brief uh, mention. Uh, we initially heard this data, those of us uh, who were at the Thor meeting. Uh, Jason presented this at the Thor meeting in Norway this uh, last June. It was uh, great to see the data already coming out. Uh, congratulations to both of you on uh, the study and getting it published in the New England Journal. And uh, it's really uh, it's really impressive uh, that this was able to be done and, and published in such a prominent location. So con- congratulations to you both. Um, if you are one of the few listeners who may have not read the paper yet, I'll just highlight real quick what the findings were. Uh, this was a prospective uh, randomized trial, cluster randomized uh, trial, looking at the use of pre-hospital plasma in injured uh, trauma patients and compared that to standard care resuscitation. Uh, they were able to randomize a total of 501 patients and um, basically showed a mortality benefit of, uh, it was, uh, let's see, mortality in the plasma group was 23.2% and in the standard care group was 33% uh, for a p-value of 0.03. So definitely mortality benefit and also did not show any increased risks of uh, complications such as acute lung injury, multi organ failure, or uh, things of that nature. Um, so uh, if you haven't read the paper, again, it's in the July 26, 2018 edition of the New England Journal. Uh, first question, uh, let me just jump right in, uh, Jason, and just uh, ask you real quick, uh, is this study the nail in the coffin for saline for trauma patients? Um, well, I think that uh, depends on what's available uh, in the pre-hospital environment, and uh, if uh, plasma is uh, available, that may be a better resuscitation fluid in patients that are critically injured. <clears throat> Uh, it may, if you are less than uh, severely injured, um, that uh, crystalloid may be just fine. If you're hypotensive or, or in shock, um, this evidence uh, suggests that plasma may be um, significantly better than uh, crystalloid uh, uh, types of resuscitation fluid. And let me just, uh, 
again, for people who may not have read the paper, that what's interesting, and maybe I'll have you, uh, will you describe a little bit the difference between standard care and the uh, interventional arm? Because I thought it was uh, mm-hmm. one of the key subtleties of this of this paper that was very interesting. Um, so standard uh, care arm was um, varied a little bit across the sites. We had uh, um, six different universities with uh, 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 nine different hospitals and uh, 27 different air bases. And um, standard care consisted of crystalloid primarily in, in the pre-hospital uh, environment, but about half our helicopter bases that were used for the trial also carried packed red blood cells. <clears throat> um, so when they all had similar uh, transfusion guidelines, uh, you had to be hypotensive and at risk of bleeding, and then they would get one to two units of packed red blood cells, and then crystalloid um, uh, that would follow uh, in patients that required resuscitation or had persistent hypotension. Um, so again, the standard of care arm was, uh, for some helicopter bases, it was packed red blood cells followed by crystalloid, and other helicopter bases, it was just crystalloid. The interventional arm, again, was uh, once that patient met inclusion criteria, which was hypotension with tachycardia or just severe hypotension less than a systolic of 70. Then those patients were to receive plasma first, two units, and then they would follow their standard resuscitation guidelines. If they had packed red blood cells and they were still hypotensive, they would receive and then blood. And if they continued to need resuscitation, then they would receive crystalloid. Patients uh, in the plasma arm that didn't have Packer blood cells, then it would go plasma and then crystalloid, depending on if the patient remained uh, hypotensive and required resuscitation. And so really this, uh, there was, uh, if I remember from the paper, something like 40% of the standard care patients did get red blood cells. And and so this is really uh, fascinating because um, this isn't just a question of blood blood products versus no blood products. This is specific, the benefit was specific to plasma. Am I correct in making that assumption? Yes. So we were able to um, do some subgroup analysis. So so a certain number of patients received pre-hospital blood, about 172 out of the uh, 501, and um, received uh, packer blood cells in the pre-hospital environment, irrespective of uh, of arm. Um, So about a little over a third received packer blood cells. Um, But um, we were able to show in subgroup analysis that there was a signal, um, whether irrespective, and those that didn't receive packer blood cells, plasma, uh, was strongly um, associated with 30-day mortality benefit, and it was uh, also associated with a mortality benefit. Um, it didn't uh, maintain its statistical significance in those with packer blood cells. But the signal uh, is uh, there in both subgroups, and uh, at least the results of the primary analysis would suggest that there was no um, that packer blood cells uh, um, may be important, but the driving force in this study was that the plasma was the beneficial factor. And so, Mark, as a as a transfusion medicine specialist, what's your take on this? What what is uh, you know how do you interpret the the plasma benefit um, or the signal that's there even in the patients that got the red blood cells? 
You know, I think it speaks to the the need to address the coagulopathy of trauma early uh, when it occurs. Um, and there are a lot of logistical issues with getting plasma to these patients on time, issues with um, recycling the plasma so you don't waste it, uh, and how do you get the plasma to the bases and back. Um, and, and, and I think what, 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 what Pamper does is a really nice complement to what the group in um, – what Gene Moore's group did in, in Denver in their um, ambulance resuscitation study where they showed that uh, basically patients who are who can get to the hospital quickly in, in 16 or 17 minutes don't see the benefit of, of, of plasma. But in our study, which was at almost double the, uh, the uh, transit time to the hospital, we showed there was a benefit. So I think, uh, I think addressing the coagulopathy early is important, although gene study shows it doesn't have to be immediately. It may take some time for the acute traumatic coagulopathy to maybe set in, and that's the the mechanism, perhaps? Yeah, I wonder. You know, I mean, if, if you look at the uh, the time difference, I wonder if, if it starts at minute 17 or 18, just after Gene's patients got to the hospital, and sometime while our patients were still in the air, because yeah. they received red cells. And unlike the uh, the, the, the Shackleford data from, from uh, her study from JAMA that looked at military transport patients, Getting something was better than getting nothing, which I think makes sense. But in our case, refine it a little bit more and say that, that of these components, maybe plasma is the most important one. Obviously, it'll be interesting to do this again with whole blood and see um, if, if we get the same findings or something different between whole blood and, and plasma. Even more bang for your buck. <clears throat> yeah. In the same in the same bag, exactly. Um while you're talking about uh, plasma, Mark, t tell me, I mean, in your study, you guys used thawed plasma. Um, is there any, uh, you know, any way that it would be different if this was FFP versus liquid plasma, never uh, never frozen, or even um, freeze-dried plasma? I mean, Jeremy Cannon, in the same issue of the, uh, of the uh, New England Journal, wrote an editorial that was commenting on this paper, really, in sort of ideal resuscitation, and mentioned freeze-dried plasma as maybe another aspect that will come out in the future. What are your thoughts about those different types of plasma products, Mark? Uh, you know, we, we've never done and probably will never do uh, a head-to-head -head study of FFP, which means plasma that was frozen within eight hours of collection, FP24, which is plasma frozen within 24 hours of collection, and then thought plasma prepared on day one from FFP, from FP24, et cetera. There's so many permutations of this that, that to enroll enough patients to show us any benefit is going to take uh, somebody who wins the lottery giving us all their money, and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. So, uh, so I think I'm I still think, playing though. Just so you know, I'm still playing the lottery oh, just in case. Um, I'd love to fund me it. Too. I can't wait to fund this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds. You know, um, I think that I think that you know the in vitro stuff shows that that this is all basically very similar. Uh, and there was a study of plasma transfusion that was actually able to break out. Some of the um, some of the different components, patients who got FFP versus FP24, and there was no no coagulation difference uh, in those recipients. So, uh, so I think the assumption that these are all basically equivalent products is reasonable. Um, with, with respect to the different plasma products, in terms of liquid plasma, it's just it's not really a product that's very commonly available in USA. Um, and it's something that that warrants study. The the freeze dried plasma is is different than, than liquid plasma or frozen plasma, and so it needs to be studied by itself as well. I think that the freeze-dried plasma would have obvious logistical 
um, uh, it would simplify logistics even more uh, because it doesn't have a five-day shelf life or even a 30-day shelf life or, or whatever it is for, for, for liquid plasma. So I think there are some very attractive features to, to the freeze-dried um, product. We just need to know if it works as well. And uh, I guess sort of on the same uh, same vein, um, what are your thoughts about uh, prothrombin complex concentrate? Um, do you think it would have a similar effect, or is there something about the volume or the sort of the rheology of the fluid that you're giving, in your opinion? I know it's a speculation, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I think I think the beauty of plasma is, is that it's got everything in there. It's got the pro and anticoagulant factors. It's got everything else that's, that's flowing in the donor. Uh, in that plasma, it's not just a couple of factors and two uh, anticoagulant factors if you're using the four factor. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's in plasma that can be helpful uh, in the resuscitation. I don't know what exactly that that, that is, uh, but I think that, that that the coagulopathy of trauma is very complex. I think the uh, the damage to the endothelium is complex, and I think assuming that a product that's got two seven nine and ten and protein C and protein S in it, uh, and that's it. I think assuming that that thing, that product is going to deal with this complex coagulopathy is is a limited view, right? I think I think uh, I think that these factors do what they do, and that's it. But the plasma itself provides volume, provides uh, other things that aren't just coagulation factors that, that might be useful in reversing this coagulopathy. So, you know, uh, I, I think that, that that's basically the the reason why we, we like plasma, and the mystery of using the plasma. Though PCC is thought to maybe have not just more than just coagulation factors, it may have some of the other components, and there might be some preliminary evidence that it's been a, that it's beneficial, but uh, that would probably need to be tested, <clears throat> and uh, obviously it has a, an expense associated with it too because it's a um, marketable product. Sure. Um, in your study, while we're on the subject of coagulopathy, I mean. Um, the the I guess the standard INR um, for the intervention or the plasma patients was 1.2, and in the standard care was uh, 1.3. Um, that did reach statistical significance. To, and as you were, you know, sort of on the ground taking care of the, pa the patients, is this sort of the fact that it's only 0.1 different? Is that what are we to make of that difference? Is that just a statistical sort of artifact, or were they actually different in their coagulation when they arrived to the hospital? Do you think? If you look at the, the the subgroups, we haven't uh, delved into the deeper questions of whether you know mass transfusion and the, and the percentages, but there was not an extreme difference of why people died from from hemorrhage. There was not a um, there was lower packward blood cell transfusion uh, uh, in the plasma group. Um, it did not uh, remain statistically significant after. Uh, controlling for multiple comparisons, which was required by the New England Journal. Um, so it had a statistically significant p-value, but when you adjusted for all the other secondary outcomes that we looked at, it didn't uh, hold up to multiple comparisons. <laughs> um, so there was a lower um, blood transfusion volume overall and for packward blood cells. <laughs> um, in, a, in addition, those, those p-values are listed, but they didn't they didn't hold after multiple comparisons in the paper and in the manuscript. Um, the, the massive trans causes of, of death are, were similar and haven't delved into that via secondary analysis quite yet, but we'll be looking at and characterizing 
how whether plasma had a more major effect than those that uh, you know had coagulopathy and required larger volumes of transfusion. Um, but um, the, there was a strong signal in those that received less than four units of Packard blood cells. Some of these patients didn't receive any of Packard blood cells. Um, and there was a strong effect in the majority of all the subgroups when they when we analyzed them, irrespective of uh, whether they received Packard blood cells pre-hospital, whether they had traumatic brain injury, whether they had uh, um, short or prolonged uh, pre-hospital transport times. Interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the complications after these patients were resuscitated. There was no real difference between the groups. One of the things that I get thrown back at me a lot as I talk about whole blood and uh, sort of aggressive use of plasma is, well, we got to worry about acute lung injury and trolley. Mark, is that a real thing? Oh, absolutely. Trolley is a, a bona fide transfusion reaction. Uh, typically, it happens when the, the donor has been multiparous uh, and, uh, and has made uh, HLA antibodies, although antibodies to other um, blood cells can, can cause trolley. Um, and it can, it can be a very serious uh, reaction. Patients can die from it if they're not recognized and treated uh, appropriately and quickly. But luckily, the, the transfusion community has recognized that trolley is a real problem, and we recognize a pretty straightforward way to mitigate it, which is to make sure that our donors don't have these these HLA antibodies. Uh, and so some, some blood centers will not collect transfusable plasma from women who have ever been pregnant because there's a stepwise increase in the incidence of, uh, uh, of producing an HLA antibody um, with increasing pregnancies. So some find it easy to just say, all right, no, no women with any pregnancies. Some women, as some centers will say, no, no women can can donate just because women might not know they've been pregnant or admit they've been pregnant or forget or something. And so they don't want to test for the antibodies, and they just want to make a very broad um, uh, and safe uh, policy. So I wasn't surprised that there wasn't uh, any trolley in this study because, um, you know, the incidence that, that, that we quote in, in, the tri in, in the transfusion community of trolley is about 1 in 12,000. So we didn't quite have 12,000 patients. It would have been nice. Um, and, and so I wasn't surprised at all uh, because the numbers were small and because the incidence is small because the products are safer. So it's definitely a real thing to worry about. Um, but like I said, we, we've taken some important steps to, to really get that risk down. Yeah, in fact, I think uh, the blood bankers have done such a good job, and that's really the root of my question. Is like I don't, I don't, I have not seen a true, you know, a full blown trolley case in a really long time, and so it's sort of like the uh, the princess bride scene with the rodents of unusual size. You know, I don't think they really exist. You know, obviously they do, but it just seems like uh, we're so protected from them by the uh, by the blood bank community. So. Uh, very interesting. Uh, yeah, I think it's an important safety innovation, and it and and it's led to some interesting consequences. One of them is, um, and we we encounter this in in doing pamper as well, was we just don't have a lot of AB plasma to go around anymore because it's a low incidence um, blood group to begin with. Three to five percent of of the donors are, are AB, and then you take out the multiparous women or those with antibodies. And, and it really, you know, really puts a strain on the AB plasma inventory. And so we've switched to using, well, not switched, but we've augmented our AB plasma with group A plasma. And at our center in, in Pittsburgh, we titer the, the anti-B in, in the A plasma. We use low titer. 
but but as we saw in a in a survey that that, that Nancy Dunbar did a few years ago, um, I think it was almost 79 percent, 80 percent of the centers in USA that use Group A plasma don't even titer. They just take the A plasma and uh, assume that 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 the recipient is either going to be Group O or Group A, which is right about 85 percent of the time. And if they happen to be B or AB, well, they're getting resuscitated. There's all kinds of other fluid that's going in. There's all kinds of reasons why they won't hemolyze. Uh, and so it's really uh, the, the, the sort of trolley pressure on us has led us to innovate and has led us to um, to come up with ways around it that are safe and effective for the patients. So we started using Group A plasma probably midway through the study. Well, um, based on this study then, have you guys moved to putting plasma into all of the helicopters? Uh, are there still some that are only uh, red blood cells? And do you think that we have enough evidence to sort of make that push now? I think I uh, think we have the evidence, but we don't have the appropriate product. As was alluded to earlier, uh, liquid plasma versus freeze-dried plasma versus thawed plasma. Thawed plasma is not the it's a very difficult situation. We had to courier it out for the study. We had to courier it every five days or when it was used on the on the helicopter base. And then uh, we attempted to recycle uh, most of the plasma, and we tried to bring it back before it expired and allowed the blood bank to use it about 50% of the time they were, um, assuming all the temperature regula- regulations were followed uh, for each of those. But... Um, <clears throat> As of right now, we are not have not implemented it on our helicopters, ba- even based upon uh, our study. Um, and we'll probably be waiting for uh, the use of either liquid plasma or freeze-dried plasma because the five-day shelf life is is uh, inhibitive, prohibitive, um, and it may be prohibitive across the country um, unless those helicopter bases are, that are actually staffed right at the hospital or right at the blood bank where they can they can get it um uh, relatively with ease with such a short shelf life so it's it, the, the results of these this study i believe should promote the fda approval for freeze dried plasma um it should be a big uh, uh initiator of that and hopefully that will be coming in the next uh, uh year or so and i think that's the, the one of the beauties of whole blood is that you've got a four times longer, at least, um, shelf life. Uh, you could potentially keep your whole blood for 21 or 35 days, depending on how you collect it. Uh, and it's got a dose of plasma and a dose of red cells in it. And so we know from, from the, the military and from our data that plasma is good for longer transport times. So a unit of whole blood ought to be, uh, you know, an important fluid for, for pre-hospital resuscitation. I couldn't agree more. Um, um, uh, regarding that, and that gives you a 30-day shelf life, similar to what the Packard blood cells, which uh, more and more helicopter uh, EMS services are carrying um, uh, across the country. Um, but whole blood, cold stored would be uh, um, uh, very be the other thing that is driven by the results of this uh, study. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned it earlier, both of you had uh, touched on it. Um, how, what was the wastage like in this study where you were so constrained because of the thawed plasma shelf life? We we had multiple sites, uh, and um, we attempted to retrieve that data. We got it from about 85, 80 to 85%. Um, and particularly, we have the best data from the University of Pittsburgh. 
and I was just looking at that data yesterday. Um, and uh, I believe there was about a 50% actual use, about around 75 to 80% were brought back and re re recycled and met temperature criteria. And 50% of those that were brought back to the blood bank approximately were used um, and given to a patient um, successfully, which we would consider as fully recycled. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, regarding those numbers. Yeah, I think it was a little higher. I think it was about 58% um, were were retrieved and were transfused. But it depends on how you how you set up your recycling, right? Like we we did the recycling um, on late late on the fourth day or early on the fifth day, which created a very short period of time for us to use that plasma. But if you have more couriers or you want to send them more frequently, and you get the plasma back on the third day, for example, then you've got a bit longer to to actually get them into somebody who needs it in the hospital. So there are ways to tweak it, but they have their costs. Um, you know, if you have more couriers, an unlimited number of couriers, a lottery winner funds a courier. You know, you can you can bring your plasma back uh, whenever you want. But if you don't happen to have a, uh, a rich benefactor, then you know you have to decide what the cut point is going to be. We pick the we were biased towards leaving the plasma at the base as long as possible, so we could use it. Uh, and so that's why our 58% utilization was um, the way it is. Had we brought it back earlier, you know, it could have been a bit higher, I think. So that's up to each center to, uh, to figure out how they're going to do it. And there are centers that are using liquid plasma. Um, I think there are relatively few. And the University of Texas at Houston, I believe, was, if, if not still is, using liquid plasma, which has similar, like a 30, 28-day to 30-day shelf life, and um, similar to Packer blood cells. And... Uh, <clears throat> which uh, it depends upon each transfusion center's capabilities um, for uh, liquid plasma, which is also relatively precious of the A, like low titer B or AB variety. Mark, in terms of production, is it is it more work to make liquid plasma? And I guess the follow-up question is, is if we were to say make a push for liquid plasma, is that something that the blood banking community could support more hospital uh, or, or uh, health transport entities if we went to liquid plasma? Or is that even you know, uh, that's a good question. And, and I'm not really sure what the limitation is on, on liquid plasma right now, why it's not being used uh, more frequently. And, and I suspect there just isn't a lot of demand for it. I suspect that if, uh, if a lot of noise was made about liquid plasma, uh, then, then the blood centers would produce it. I imagine it's a very similar thing to, to whole blood where a few years ago there wasn't really a lot of demand for it, so there wasn't much produced, although it could have been produced. Now there's more demand, and the blood centers are swinging on to this product and an and opportunity to, to provide it. So I think if, uh, I think if, if, if the trauma community um, wants it, then they ought to, uh, they ought to make a point of, of, of asking for it. And the more the blood center hears it, the more they'll be inclined to, to satisfy their customers' uh, wishes with it. So the demand will help drive the supply a little bit in this case. Yeah, I think so. You know, because I I, I don't think that the blood centers are really aware of of um, the benefits of using uh, uh, the liquid plasma in this setting. But if they were, if their eyes were open to it, then uh, I think they'd be they'd be quite willing to to produce it. Um, one other question, as long as we're talking about sort of 
rolling it out in the pre-hospital environment, and, and Jason, you mentioned this as well. Um, the the Denver group, when they published that, you know, the pre-hospital plasma didn't seem to make a huge difference, but they had such short transport times. Do either of you ever see a role of plasma in ground transport crews, or is that just sort of, do we have the evidence to say that that's not necessary because the transport times are short? Jason, why don't you take it first and then let you come in as well, Mark? Sure. I mean, the the Denver combat study was an excellent and well-run study. Um, They had shorter hospital times, and they also had a higher percentage of penetrating trauma. Um, And uh, we had 15%, and they approached 50%, not looking at the article on myself, but from my remembrance of reading it and and knowing it um so th- there are there are differences in our cohort they, their overall mortality was 10% and our overall mortality uh, 10 to 12% and our overall mortality was uh, 30% and so the cohorts are different and there there's two there're two different patient cohorts and the use of plasma in those separate but in different and uh, unique cohorts are are different the res- the response is different so just need to be careful in attributing one or the other, but the, the, the study cohorts were totally different. When we look at time, there are differences, and um, and um, they have uh, vast majority are less than 20 minutes, and, and pretty much the vast majority of ours are greater than 20 minutes. There's a little bit of overlap between the um, cohorts. And those with longer pre-hospital times have a higher rate of mortality, and those with lower pre-hospital uh, times have a lower rate of mortality. And that can be due that not be that may not be just due to time; that may be due to differences in the in the cohorts. <clears throat> so, any comparison of whether that study shows plasma is not beneficial or is beneficial, depending on time, it's it's really specific for the uh, the, the cohort uh, studied. And, and that's the best, yeah. yeah, and they're both unique. Mark, any thoughts? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Um, but I wonder, even if the um, coagulopathy of trauma takes some time to develop, if trying to sort of get ahead of it early uh, might might mm. still make some sense. And that gets back to Jason's point about the, the, the two cohorts being being somewhat different. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened in, in our cohort if we'd had shorter times. The plasma would still have had a, an effect. But again, I think whole blood is, is really the, the ideal resuscitation fluid in this setting because the patient needs both. And if he can get started with the plasma and a red cell at the same time while they're en route, then they'll be that much more ahead when they actually get to the hospital. But again, it, it really does come down to the, uh, the types of patients that, that, that are being studied. Yeah. And we also have to be careful because in penetrating trauma, there may be some <clears> – <throat> there was no harm shown in, in our penetrating uh, uh, percentage. It's a small group, but there wasn't a strong signal in our penetrating uh, patients. And so there may be, though, that it doesn't – it's not causing harm, but uh, <clears throat> it may, um, you know, hypo-resuscitation, uh, which is another management algorithm, may be more beneficial with short transport times and penetrating. So there may be, you know, a specific subgroup of, of both combat patients and pamper patients where plasma is beneficial, and then there may be a smaller subgroup where, you know, it may not be, and it could be, you know, we're going to try to tease those things out uh, over time. Let's talk about personalized medicine. I mean, does it get any more personalized than this? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think 
keeps becoming more and more clear as these studies come out is that um, you know we we tend to lump all bleeding patients kind of together into one category, mm. and there's clearly different phenotypes of exsanguinating hemorrhage or different uh, you know different types of these patients, and the treatment uh, can be very different it seems. So I'd also like to state that these all these patients weren't weren't bleeding. Um, there was some bleeding, and there was patients that required massive transfusion, um, but um, there was multi you know, poly trauma patients with both TBI and uh, and moderate injury, um, and um, the you know plasma may benefit more than just from a coagulopathy standpoint. Um, it may benefit from an endothelial cell protection standpoint, which um, you know we're looking into as from secondary analysis standpoint of from samples that were obtained and measuring endothelial cell markers uh, across the groups to see if we can find an underlying mechanism but maybe why there's a significantly significant subgroup for traumatic brain injury, <clears throat> um, which demonstrated a 21% mortality difference <clears throat> benefit, right. um, which was even greater than the, the overall 10% uh, uh, mortality benefit associated with a plasma. Um, so there, there may be some things that we... Uh, we may, may be able to attribute to plasma that, as of yet, has only been hypothesized in the basic science laboratory. And uh, it'd be nice to show it uh, in this uh, randomized trial that maybe it's protecting the endothelium, and that may be irrespective of blood loss. Now, what drives the endothelium to be sick is, is shock and is in hemorrhage, but it may not be maybe uh, protective via different mechanisms other than just uh, uh, preventing further blood loss. You know, at SOAR this year, we talk a lot about um, plasma as a volume expander, <clears throat> which would clearly be something uh, useful to patients who are bleeding. But it's still quite controversial as to whether we should be using it just for that role as well. So I think there's a lot we still don't know about plasma and, and what it can and can do for, for, for trauma patients. Well, again, it's a it's a monumental study, and and I can only imagine the logistics it took to to, to get it off the ground. In fact, we we a fair number of our listeners are sort of uh, researchers at the earlier stages of their career. What was it like to get a study like this off the ground? Um, there was a large multi-year process of uh, this type of study, which is called Exception from Informed Consent or EFIC trial. Because we did it to patients before that without their ability to consent, we did it in an emergency setting. Um, so first, uh, it required um, uh, applying for an IND to, from the FDA, and that took uh, six to six months to a year with multiple revisions, and they had to approve our protocol. Then we had another six months or so of getting IRB approval, and then doing community consultation and uh, community notification, allowing patients the potential to opt out from the trial, and then finally getting it executed and getting plasma on the helicopters, organizing the couriers, getting University of Pittsburgh with Dr. Yazer's help um, significantly and Dr. Treluzzi, um, both from our blood banking colleagues, um, getting us running at Pittsburgh, and then we took it after we did that, we did the same thing at six uh uh, six other sites. Wow. Um, it had to do community consultation in each of those places. And so it took approximately a little under two years at the University of Pittsburgh before we could be enrolling and then another six months 
uh, or longer to get the sites up and running. And so it took a two and a half year upfront time to get all cylinders firing and enrolling. And then we took three and a half years to enroll. Um, it was difficult to say, and then executing a multi-center trial is, uh, you know, difficult in general. Um, doing it under exception from informed consent conditions are, uh, also makes it uh, challenging. But but very fun to do and exciting and complex. Yeah, and, and kudos, honestly. I, as you're talking about this and reading through the methods, I can just only imagine um, the logistical headaches, and I'm sure it, it probably felt like it was never going to happen at multiple points along the way. So uh, you know, congratulations for, for having the intestinal fortitude to carry it through, you and all of your co-authors. I know it takes a village of people to, to do something as involved as this. So, uh, so strong work, and thank you for all of those efforts in, in uh, helping advance the science. Well, I think uh, that's uh, sort of a nice overview. I, I recommend to all the listeners, if you haven't had a chance, again, go find the article and read through it. And I'd also recommend the editorial by uh, Jeremy Cannon that's in the same article as they kind of go together. Um, this is an interesting and exciting area of uh, trauma surgery and resuscitation. And it crosses, this is kind of what I like about the Thor meeting and what I like about resuscitation is it crosses through a bunch of different disciplines, trauma surgery, anesthesia, emergency medicine, blood banking. I mean, there's uh, pre-hospital, in-hospital, po- I mean, everything kind of comes together in this issue, and it's uh, very complex and uh, and interesting. So uh, I want to thank both of my guests, Dr. Uh, Jason Sperry from the University of Pittsburgh and Dr. Uh, Mark Gazer, also from the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks for your time today in discussing this. Uh, is it our my pleasure. Yeah, our pleasure. We, that, that's for sure. We will uh, put a link to the article, uh, at least to the PubMed version of the article, up on the East website uh, to protect copyright laws, of course. But you can go find it there. And um, hopefully we'll hear more from this uh, data as you continue to uh, analyze it and find other important lessons. Thank you both. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks again. Bye. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.